Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to dig into another one of our classic album dissections. This time of Van Morrison's 1968 release, Astral Weeks. And later on, Greg and I will review the new albums by pop superstar Kelly Clarkson and the Somalia-born rapper Kanon. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time to welcome our newest affiliate. Yes, Greg, whenever a station adds Sound Opinions to its roster, we like to say thanks by playing a great piece of music from its neck of the woods. Today we're adding Rochester, New York's WRUR 88.5 FM instantly. Only one band sprung to mind right away. Chesterfield. (laughs) Kings. That's right. The Chesterfield Kings emerged at the tail end of the original punk explosion in the 70s, and they were reviving that wonderful garage rock sound of the Nuggets era, the mid-60s. They are still going strong. You see them live today. They're going to play at South by Southwest in a couple of weeks, and it is 1966. There are go-go dancers. (laughs) There are mop-top haircuts. There are Vox teardrop guitars. And most of all, there's that wonderful sound that you hear in this song, She Told Me Lies. Chesterfield King's classic She Told Me Lies, wonderful garage rock from Rochester. Welcome, WRUR 88.5 FM.
That, of course, is Prince. Uh, he is funky. And uh, he's also going to be selling his records in Target stores in a few weeks. The latest artist to join the parade of artists who have arranged exclusive deals with these big box merchandisers, the best buys in the Walmarts of the world. Now Prince is going to release three new studio albums simultaneously at Target for the price of $11.98. One called Lotus Flower, a second called Minneapolis Sound, and a third, Elixir, devoted to his latest protege, Bria Valente. Nobody's heard the music yet. I can't vouch for the music, but once again, Prince at the forefront of innovating in terms of how he's getting his music out there. Recall that uh, a few years ago, he bundled his latest CD in with the price of one of his concert tickets so that everybody who bought a ticket to one of his shows on his arena tour was then handed a CD as they walked through the turnstiles. A couple of years ago, he uh, included his latest CD in every edition of one of London's biggest daily newspapers. Yeah, yeah. So here's a guy who's going around the system as much as possible. This is his latest move. I don't think anybody's attempted to release three CDs, Jim, at one time through a major retailer in this fashion. Well, available at Target and only Target. It is always important, Greg, to note, I think, when we cover these stories, that this is spitting in the face of those thousands of retailers across the country, the mom-and-pop record stores that have kept Prince in his purple robes for 30 years now. There's no reason to go to the local record store now to buy this record because you have to go to Target. I think that's really inconsiderate to the industry that supported him. It is, but it's also a case of finding shelf space, getting prominent shelf space at a major retail outlet. We're talking about 1,600 stores nationwide, a huge clientele that may not even know that Prince exists anymore. He thinks that's the best way of getting his music out to the people. Now, Now, part two of this is the band No Doubt making a big comeback tour in the summer of 2009 with the price, a full price ticket, $42.50. If you pay the top tier ticket for this stadium tour of 2009, you will get every song that No Doubt has ever put out via a digital download. So in other words, they're bundling their entire back catalog in with the price of a concert ticket. Another innovative way of getting your music out there. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. You're talking about several CDs worth of music there, all for that price of of a single concert ticket. And that's a relatively low price as these arena tours go when you're seeing $250, $200, $42.50 and their entire catalog? Not a bad deal. listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the great Van Morrison, with a song called The Way Young Lovers Do. Not from the original album, Astral Weeks, but from the newly issued Astral Weeks Live at the Hollywood Bowl. Greg, from time to time here on Sound Opinions, we like to dig deep into a classic album and kind of dissect it, talk about why this is an important record, our thoughts on it, why we love it, why it's an enduring masterpiece. Van has given us the excuse to uh, dive into Astral Weeks because he's just gone back to it himself 40 years later, although he insisted that this isn't so much going back a nostalgic look at Astral Weeks, that that 1968 classic, but a, a new imagination of it. He never got to play the densely orchestrated, very jazzy, complex arrangements live, really, at the time the album came out. 
Yeah, absolutely, Jim. It uh, was a classic record at, in its time, although it didn't sell a whole lot of copies, and it never really produced a major hit single. It took 33 years to go gold. Yeah, absolutely, but it was a major landmark work in Morrison's career. In a lot of ways, even though he's made a ton of great music since it was released in 1968, I don't think he's ever scale the heights that he did emotionally mm-hmm. uh, with Astral Weeks. There's something very special about this album, and we're going to try to get to the heart of it. Yes. At the time in his career, Morrison was 22 going on 23 years old. He was only 23 when the album was completed, so he's a very young man, but he'd already had a fairly long career in, in music. He was in an Irish garage rock band called Them, most famous for writing the hit Gloria, which was appropriated by a Chicago garage rock yeah. band, of all things, uh, Shadows of Night, which had a top ten hit with it in the mid-60s. But Morrison was listening to a lot of R&B and blues, of course, uh, as an influence. And then he came across Dylan in the mid-60s and realized, the music I'm doing right now really has nothing to do with what's happening out there. I mean, Dylan is making these amazing abstract records that are diving beyond the Moon June love songs that a lot of other people are writing. I want to write music like that. So he left them, came to the United States, wanted to record solo music, and was looking for an appropriate producer. He had a great deal of respect for this guy, Burt Burns, who had done a lot of great music with people like Solomon Burke, Wilson Pickett, the Drifters, as a staff producer for Atlantic Records. Mm -hmm. Burns was starting his own label. He apparently got Morrison. He understood what Morrison was trying to do. He wanted to make acoustic-flavored music that was more personal in nature, an Irish response to Bob Dylan, if you will. Or at least Morrison thought that Burt Burns got him. But when he showed up to the studio, he was shocked to see all these musicians there and all these instruments. There was three guitars, and there was a drummer, and mm-hmm. there was multiple bass players. And he's going, wait a minute, I don't want to make pop records. Yeah. You know, I want to make these personal records. Out of that session came Van Morrison's biggest hit, ironically, Brown-Eyed Girl. Van Morrison wasn't even around at the finish of that song. He let the other guys in the studio finish it because he was so disgusted with the kind of music he was making. He had he had no intention. Not what he wanted to do. He had no intention of making that kind of music. He left that studio session in 1967, moved to Boston, started playing the coffee houses in Boston with a trio, more close to the vision that he was seeking. It was acoustic guitar, it was flute, it was upright bass. This was a strange kind of music. It wasn't really readily accepted then. What was it? Was it rock? Was it jazz? Was it folk? Was it R&B? Was it blues? It was influenced by all of those things, but it really wasn't any one of those things. The biggest problem for Van Morrison in 1968 was finding a producer who could make a record that understood what he wanted to do. And he went through these producers one after another, and they were all going, well, yeah, we can make pop hits with this guy. 
Uh, and Van goes, I don't want to make a pop record. I want to make a record that is not a rock record. I want to make a record that doesn't even have a drummer on it. So he was talking to all of these producers. Finally, he came across a guy who did understand what he wanted, and he was Louis Merenstein. Louis Merenstein was a guy who ended up working with people like Charlie Musselwhite, the Spencer Davis Group, Mama Cass Elliot, the Mamas and Papas, John Cale, Gladys Knight. He was a respected producer, but he also was blown away by Van Morrison. When he heard Van Morrison sing those songs in his office, he goes, I know exactly what I want to do with this guy. And he called up his friend Richard Davis, great, great bass player, out of the jazz scene and said, I've got this session I want you to do, and I want you to hire the best players you can find. Well, Richard Davis was coming out of the jazz world. He didn't know who the heck Van Morrison was. He didn't care about rock music. He understood jazz. But he put together the best lineup of jazz musicians that was available for this session. So Richard Davis on bass, he calls up Jay Berliner, who was playing with the Charlie Mingus band to play guitar. And he calls up a guy named Connie Kay, who was Mm -hmm. only in the modern jazz quartet to play drums. So Van said he didn't really want a drummer, but he got Connie Kay, who was just this master drummer, uh, very subtle, uses a lot of brushes. He was the perfect call for this session. I think Berliner is an important name, too, because with Mingus, he had played on Black Saint and The Sinner Lady. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an album that's very similar to the way that Astral Weeks is set up in terms of its ambition and its musical eclecticism. I I really think that that is in jazz what Astral Weeks is in rock. Yeah, that's a great point, Jim. And I think uh, the, the title track of the album really sets it up. It introduces the record. It takes you to a place that is unlike any in music at this point. This is 1968, remember. Nobody was really making records like Van Morrison wanted to make at this point. And uh, the title song, which is the first song that he played for Louis Merenstein when he went to his office and said, this is what I want. And what Merenstein heard was a soul singer, this Irish soul singer, with an acoustic guitar, fronting this band of jazz musicians, making this episodic, epic music that was nonlinear in a lot of ways. There weren't, really weren't verses and choruses and bridges in the traditional sense of a pop song. It was more of an ebb and flow. These songs were expansive. They would go on for six, seven, eight, nine minutes mm-hmm. at a time. No producer in his right mind at that time was interested in commercial music would have made a record like this. But Louis Merenstein understood what Van Morrison was after, and I think he got it, set the, set the blueprint for the record when he made Astral Weeks. The first thing you hear about this record is that Richard Davis's bass is basically the lead instrument on it. He is setting the tone for the entire record. I think the poetry of the language in the very opening of this track really is just absolutely transcendent, and it takes you to a place where he's talking about living in between dreams and and talking about a place that is not of this world. In fact, he talks about being a stranger in this world and going someplace else, this idea of transcendence. So he sets up the themes for the record very well. And what I'm going to play for you is the end of the track. There's no way we're going to be able to play these epic tracks in their entirety here. 
But this track builds and builds and builds to this crescendo of feeling and then slowly recedes. And literally, it's like the trembling of the leaves in a summer breeze at the end with the, with the fiddles shivering and the bass underneath it all and Morrison's voice finally descending into a whisper. He says, I want to be reborn. He wants to go to another place and he's taking us to that place as this album begins. So here it is, the title track from Astral Weeks on Sound Opinions. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the flat ducks of your dream Where a mobile steel rims crack And the ditch in the back road stop Could you find me? Would you kiss my eyes To be born again To be born again To be born again To be born again In another world, darling In another world In another time Got a home on high Ain't nothing but a stranger in this world I'm nothing but a stranger in this world I got a home on high In another land So far away so far away We up in the heaven We up in the heaven We up in the heaven That is the amazing final few minutes of the seven-minute title track from Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. We're going to continue our classic album dissection of Van Morrison's 1968 masterpiece in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And then later on, Greg and I will review the new albums from Kelly Clarkson and Kanon. In another place In another
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Jim and I are in the midst of a classic album dissection of Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. And when you listen to a track like we just heard there, Ballerina, you think, man, the chemistry in the studio between this band of musicians and Van Morrison must have been extraordinary. But that really wasn't the reality, was it? There are different stories, Greg. Some of the biographers have said, and uh, actually John Cale, who was recording in the studio next door, said that everything he heard from the Van Morrison Astral Week sessions, which only lasted two days, two days in Mm -hmm. New York City produced the entire album, was that everyone despised Morrison, who (laughs) can be a nasty individual. You famously have seen him take a punch at a band member on stage. Mm -hmm. He's not an easy interview, uh, is cantankerous, is opinionated, does not suffer fools. That the other musicians hated working with him. He laid down acoustic guitar and vocals, and the rest of the band fleshed it out. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if it matters. It does have this wonderful sense of a group playing together and improvising. And a key part of that is that Morrison improvises with his vocals in the same way that the great jazz flautists and bassists and and Berliner on guitar, the same way that they're improvising. Repetition being a key thing here. Again and again throughout this album, you hear Van seize on a word and drive it home. He uses his voice as a drum or as a rhythm instrument, like the bass. You know, you said that Richard Davis is the lead instrument here as the bassist. That's kind of what Van's doing with his vocal, too. Mm-hmm. So never, never, never wonder why at all. No, 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 no. So never, never wonder why at all. So never, never, never wonder why it's gotta be. It has to be. Way across the country where the hillside mountain glide. The dynamo of your smile caressed the barefoot virgin child to wander. The other big thing to think about when you listen to Astral Weeks, well, there's a couple. I mean, one is it's a song cycle. It really is best appreciated as an album. We can't play the whole thing for you here, but it's an old school beginning, middle to end journey. And then there's the spiritual aspect. Again, Van Morrison not being a very cooperative person. Biographies differ. Some people report that he was a Jehovah's Witness. In fact, he wasn't raised in any religious tradition, but his mother did experiment with the Jehovah's Witness religion. He went to some uh, revival meetings. Throughout his life, Van continued to search for something, for some sort of spiritual meaning. I have to think that in the end, he found his religion in music itself. Mm -hmm. But he was fascinated with this idea of how does one transcend the everyday? How do you find heaven on earth? In large part, what Astral Weeks is about is you find it in love, Mm -hmm. in true love. Now, he has a lot of definitions of love. And that also includes pain. You know, <laughs> they, uh, all great religions, you got to suffer to get the reward. Well, I shall drive my chariot down your streets and cry. Well, it's beyond dynamite and I don't know why. And you shall take me strongly in your arms again. And I won't remember that I ever felt the pain. So this is an album both of extraordinary joy and deep, deep, dark pain. Absolutely, Jim. I think the the song I think you're going to play next illustrates that very well. 
And I think it's important, too, to note the setting for this album. It's a, it's a metaphorical place, but most of these songs are set in his native Belfast in Ireland, and Cypress Avenue, the main drag in Belfast, plays a, an incredible role in these songs. And it's more not a geographical location for him. It's more a state of mind where time and space are really fluid. So he's going back to these childhood memories and these adolescent passions and bringing it up to date with his adult anxieties. But you can see the song sort of morphing in space and time as they go along from line to line and verse to verse. It's constantly changing. The perspective is changing. But what it is is he's talking again as about this spiritual journey. And when he goes to Cypress Avenue, he's talking about the side of town that he wasn't really allowed on. That was the street of dreams in Belfast. That's where the rich people lived. That's where the pretty girls were. And when you went to Cypress Avenue, you went there as a place of longing. That's where you wanted to be, but you're not there. You're not going to get it. It's just out of reach. And I think the track that you're going to play illustrates that notion of a dream being just out of reach. Well, yeah, I do want to play Cypress Avenue in large part because it's the song that Van Morrison closed his sets with in live performance for years and years and years. It became a trademark. I think it's also indicative of the album. People read endlessly into the lyrics and ponder the meaning. At various points, Van has said simply, Astral Weeks, I quote, are little poetic stories I made up on the spot. Mm -hmm. We we can accept that or we can think, no, something as complex as this song Cypress Avenue has got to be more to it. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. It's a complicated song. Uh, As you said, you know, you can read that it was this place in Belfast that that he couldn't get to where the muckety-mucks live, or he is an older man in this song watching a 14-year-old girl stroll down the street. Yeah. Is this a Lolita kind of situation where he's experiencing a lust he shouldn't have? Is it him as an older man looking back on the past that he did have and the joys that he had? Is it the past he wished he had? Yeah. I mean, you don't really know. Before we play this song, I want to put it in context of the great rock critic Lester Bangs. You know, Lester was known for championing heavy metal and punk rock and really being the voice of of those two musics. And as his biographer, one of the things I found fascinating was that when he contributed to a wonderful book came out in the early 80s called Stranded, where some of the great pioneering rock critics were asked to write about the one album they loved most, he chose Astral Weeks. Lester, like Van, had a mom who was a Jehovah's Witness and struggled with the concept of where you find transcendence in life. And he found the answer in two extreme poles, White Light, White Heat by the Velvet Underground, which came out in 68, and this album, which came out in 68. What Lester wrote was that Astral Weeks deals not in facts but in truths. Insofar as it can be pinned down, it is a record about people stunned by life, completely overwhelmed, stalled in their skins, their ages, and their selves, paralyzed by the enormity of what, in one moment of vision, they can comprehend. Think about that, or this old man sitting in a car on Cypress Avenue watching the 14-year-old girl. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Well, I'm caught one more time up on Cypress Avenue I call one more time up on Cypress Avenue Here I'm conquered in a car seat Nothing that I can do I 
That is Cypress Avenue by the great Van Morrison from his 1968 album Astral Weeks. We're doing a classic album dissection of this disc. Greg, where does the record go from here? Jim, that's a great question. I think people have been trying to answer that question ever since. (laughs) I mean, Van never has explicitly stated what this album is about, and people draw their own feelings out of it. But what's clear to me is I think this album is, above all, an album about feeling very deeply about something, about life. And I think it's those extremes in feeling that make life worth living and also produce that unbearable pain that you hear in Cypress Avenue. And later on in a song like Madam George, where he's basically talking about this drag queen with an incredible amount of empathy and insight. It's this nine-minute song, and he's talking about the, the boys coming around to the drag queen's house to party and drink and dance. And then when the, when the music ends and the booze runs out, they all leave, and there's the drag queen lonely again by yep. herself. And he's overwhelmed by this sight. Like, th- this person will never find true happiness in this world. There will always be these momentary bursts of happiness, and then it, it all falls apart, and you're left with yourself, and you're just completely lonely and, and devastated. It's very understandable why this record didn't become a huge commercial hit. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, people didn't understand what it was about. They didn't understand the music. But as you listen to the music now, it's incredibly powerful and incredibly well played. It ends on a note of just total devastation. There's a song called Slim Slow Slider, which ends the record. And Davis's bass playing, which we've extolled throughout the last few minutes here, talking about how he's the lead voice on this, on this record as much as Van Morrison's own voice is, suddenly becomes incredibly agitated. And you, and you hear everything falling apart, and then boom, it's like fade to black. 
mm-hmm. you know it's like that Sopranos episode it just like it just ends <laughs> every time I see you I just don't know what to do Or does it, though? People would say concept album, Van. What was your idea of making the concept album? And he always said, no, song cycle, Mm -hmm. which means that it starts over again. You know, it's life, death, rebirth, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that ends it there, Greg. I mean, that's just where the vinyl ended back in the vinyl day. But if you have your CD player on repeat or your iPod shuffle, right? It's a big issue, Jim. Uh, You know, he talks about being reborn again at the start of the album. He talks about death at the very end of it. And you're absolutely right. What is exactly does that mean? Is it a spiritual death, a physical death? Do we have to experience a little death in ourselves in order to live life to its fullest? There's a, there's a lot of possible meanings here. But what it is, again, it goes back to that deep, deep feeling. And the only way to live life is to live it in these extremes. And I think it's no wonder that he really never went back to this place again because it, it is sort of a torturous journey. You can hear it in Cypress Avenue. You can hear it in Madame George. Mm-hmm. Do we really want to experience that level of pain and sadness? No, we don't. Traditionally, But when you're a 23-year-old man with your whole life spread in front of you, you want to test those limits. And that's exactly what Van Morrison was doing in Astral Weeks. And that's why it's an amazing record that people still want to hear today. Well, and I recommend that people go back to the 68 recording. I think that Astral Weeks Live at the Hollywood Bowl, this new release, I mean... I wish he had brought it to Chicago. We didn't get to see these shows. Yeah. He only did a handful of cities. On the other hand... I don't think he. I don't think it tops. I don't think this live recording. I don't think any of the shows could have topped what we have on the original album. Well, that ends our discussion of Astral Weeks. But obviously, there's plenty more to be said about this album. If you want to chime in, give us a comment or a call eight 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 five nine eighteen hundred or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. After a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Jim and I are going to review new albums from Kelly Clarkson and Kanan, and then I'm going to pop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. As I venture in the slipstream between the viaducts of your dream Where immobile steel rims crack And the ditch in the back roads stop Could you find me? Would you kiss in my eyes? Lay me down
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is Kelly Clarkson. A new album is out called All I Ever Wanted, and that is the first single, My Life Would Suck Without You. And no, I'm not speaking specifically to Jim, but even if it may be true. Oh, uh, thanks, Greg. Who knows what Kelly Clarkson is singing about there? Maybe she's singing about Clive Davis. Maybe this is her way of mm. reconciling with her boss at her record label. That single has already relaunched Clarkson's career in a big way. It went from 97 to number one on the charts in a single week, the biggest leap on the Billboard charts in its history, sold 290,000 downloads in a single week. All indications are that Kelly Clarkson is making a big comeback. Now, you'll recall that in 2002, she was the first winner of the American Idol contest. That launched her solo career. She had a huge breakthrough in 2004 with the record Breakaway. The big single on that one was Since You've Been Gone, sold 11 million copies. She decided to do a little bit of, you know, let's be an artist here. Let's, <laughs> let's make a personal statement in 2007 with the record My December. Clive Davis, her record company boss, said, this record stinks. Why are you putting it out? Publicly said this. So there was a huge falling out with his major star. Turns out Clive Davis was right. The record only sold 800,000 copies. Kelly Clarkson fired her manager. She had to majorly downsize a stadium tour to a theater tour that year. There was some question whether Kelly Clarkson had any gas left in the tank. Jim and I are going to review this album in a minute, but let's play a track from All I Ever Wanted. It's called Why You Want to Bring Me Down from Kelly Clarkson on Sound Opinions. That is Why You Want to Bring Me Down, All Run Together, One Word, by Kelly Clarkson on Sound Opinions, her new album, All I Ever Wanted, the fourth of her career. Greg, I'm kind of mystified by 26-year-old Kelly because a lot of our peers, critical peers, champion her as bubblegum that is female empowering. Mm -hmm. Now, I like bubblegum that is female empowering as the father of a 12-year-old daughter. I like it when it's good. I think Pink is really good. I like Joss Stone. I like Hilary Duff. Kelly Clarkson is just all right because half of her records when she is actually being Kelly Clarkson and not trying to be – remember what she said she was trying to do with My December? Make a personal statement. No, no, no. She kept comparing it to Bruce Springsteen's oh, Nebraska. Yeah, well. She wanted to make her version of Springsteen's Nebraska. 
Half of her records are soggy ballads in that classic American Idol, I wish I was on Broadway, but I'll settle for pop star mm-hmm. kind of vein. And then the other half, you know, is perfectly innocuous, catchy pop rock, you know, where she sings like, don't let the boy keep you down. I like half of this record a lot. Some of the best songs uh, were co-written by Katie, I Kissed a Girl, Perry. You know, the other half, when she gets into ballad territory, you know, cry, and if no one will listen, I got no use for it. But overall, when it's uh, blasting out of a loved one's uh, iPod, uh, it's at least not making me sick. So on the buy it, burn it, <laughs> trash it scale, yeah, I'll give it a burn. You know, Clarkson has an endearing personality. I've covered her a few times in concert. She definitely has a connection with her audience that goes above and beyond sort of the fly-by-night pop idol. And that connection is real. And I think what they sense is a certain amount of sincerity in what she's singing. And that's why I thought she had a big chance to sort of assert herself as as an artist, as someone who had something to say on that last record. When she did that last solo tour, there was a section in the middle of the show where she did some really stripped-down stuff, just accompanied by a piano and her voice, and it sounded great. And I go, she should make an entire album just like yeah, this. Yeah, but everybody at the Chicago Theater, where you and I saw her, went out and bought T-shirts when she was doing that stretch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think uh, she caved into what the record company wanted, which was, you know what, you need to make a high production line, glossy pop record, just like you did in 2004, and get back to that mass audience again. And you can tell, the the choices for the producers are incredibly conservative. I mean, this guy, Howard Benson, who does a lot of the production on this record, is a guy who works with these formula alternative rock bands, you know, the the Papa Roaches and the Daughtries of the world. You have Ryan Tedder, who does a half dozen songs on this record. He's the singer and songwriter in that awful band, One Republic, and he's, you know, producing a lot of this record, writing a lot of the songs on this record. So her production choices are incredibly conservative. And as a result, despite the fact that this woman, I think, has something to say, I think she's got a terrific voice, I think the production completely kills whatever she's trying to get across. I'm with you on the fact that some of the pop rock stuff is pretty innocuous, pretty solid, but it's nothing great. It's certainly not Avril Lavigne good, even. Um, <laughs> so i got to rate this album a huge disappointment in my book. Uh, really? I'm, I'm a fan. I like her stuff. I think this is, a, this is a terrible misstep for her. I think she's gone in the wrong direction completely, and I give it a trash at Jim. That is a song called T.I.A., the first track from the second album by rapper Kanon. Greg, in the very next song, he goes on to talk about, I'm from the most risky zone, no place is more shifty, global, more pistols, Russian revolvers. <laughs> and you think, okay, is another gangster rapper talking about the tough neighborhood where he grew up. Well... Kanan has the right to talk about the tough neighborhood where he grew up. It was in Mogadishu, in Somalia, in the midst of that brutal civil war in the early 90s. He and his mother escaped, coming first to New York and then settling up in Ontario, where he still lives. 
First album was a buzzed about but little heard indie release, a live record. Now he's got his first major label album. He's executive producer. He is overseeing the production. Big hand in this record, along with some high-profile guests. The classic uh, old-school rapper Chubb Rock stops by, and Maroon 5's Adam Levine, and Metallica's Kirk Hammett is playing a guitar solo on one track. Don't let any of that color your opinion, though, because there's some extraordinary music here. Let's play a little of it and then give our opinions as we do with these record reviews. This is a track called ABCs, and it really is about the fact that in Somalia, young kids are learning the mechanics of gunplay before they're learning the alphabet. This is Kanon on Sound Opinions from the album Troubadour. I'm noble. I'm from the most risky zone. Oh, no place is more shifty global. More pistols, Russian revolvers. We shooting all that is normal. But it ain't just because we want to. We ain't got nowhere we can run to. Somebody please press the undo. They only teach us the things they guns do. They don't teach us the ABCs. We play out of Crushed up linen, fly like Cessna, this type groove, I gave it birth. Now it's time again to give it a verse. Jamaican born, not a fan of the ganja. Clear by Brooklyn to Somalia. Uh, get them goes in the background. Player, that is my sound. The green doesn't symbolize I made it on the top. Pioneer legend and they call me Mr. Rock. No B-word or N-word, I don't need those words. Respect for hers. The game dried up, so we coming to Greece. Leading you right and treating you right to peace. That's ABCs from Kenan. His new record is called Troubadour on Sound Opinions. You know, it's an interesting hybrid that he's got going here, that hip-hop, reggae, African uh, mix of music. I think when he sticks to that stuff, Jim, this is a really compelling record, a fresh voice with an undeniable perspective. You know, his point, there's no ghetto tougher than the one I come from. I love that line in the song ABCs that we just played. He comes from a world where nobody's fat enough for lipo. Yeah. The world that these rappers of today, these bling-obsessed rappers are singing about, uh, can't possibly compare to the one I came from. And I think in, in sort of addressing that world in, in a journalistic fashion and at the same time providing this cross-cultural type of music, he's a bilingual rapper, by the way. It's an exotic new sound, and it's a nice antidote to what else is going on out there in mainstream hip-hop. I think where this record falls down is when he tries to get too diverse. I dislike mightily the track where that Maroon 5 guy, Animal Veen, comes in <laughs> and sings the chorus. I mean, it just completely ruins the song. I don't know why Kirk Hammett is playing on this record. Yeah, he doesn't no belong here that, either. No. There's some weaker tracks at the end of the record. One where he's talking about waiting for a money transfer, a song called 15 Minutes. You know, I, I think he spends a lot of time talking about a, a relatively mundane subject and doesn't do it in a very interesting manner. But I think about half of this album is really strong, and if he had stuck to that stuff, I think he would have had a winner here. As it is, Jim, I have to, on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, I have to give it a burn it. I'm uh, I'm just generally in a better mood today than you because I'm going to give it a buy it. Although there are some weak tracks, there is no need 
for those uh, silly cameos. I mean, really, hip hop ought to pass a law: no more cameos, or or like <laughs> one cameo max per album, and it can't be anybody from Maroon Five. Kanan has a strong voice, Greg. He's a good singer. He's as strong a singer as he is a rapper, and there's that kind of wonderful laconic uh, style that's earning him comparisons to Most Def and Talib Kweli. I think there's also a lot of similarity in the way that he structures his songs to Kanye West. Now, Kanye's, you know, drawing samples from Daft Punk and from Dusty Soul classics, and Kanan is actually favoring a lot of African music, in particular African jazz, mm-hmm. but he's really emphasizing the melodies, and I think that that's, that's the key. The melodies are so strong on this record that even when he gets a little too earnest, I can forgive him. I, I think this is a really strong voice, and I'm glad that it's here to buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a turn popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox and playing a track that we can't live without, at least not today. Mr. Cott, it's your turn. Thank you, Jim. Uh, A few months ago, we were talking about My Bloody Valentine and the fact that that group basically went away after crafting a masterpiece in 1991 called Loveless. They finally resurfaced last year for a tour, but who knows when we're going to see another record from them. Another artist I would put in that category of where did they go after making an unbelievable record and then just dropping off the map, one Michael D'Angelo Archer, better known as D'Angelo made a record in 2000 called Voodoo that I still consider one of the best records of this decade, and here it is, 2009, and no sign of a follow-up. What happened to D'Angelo? I'm not sure I can answer that question in the time I'm allotted for this segment, but I can play a track from what I think is one of the best albums of of recent years. And in some ways it's been lost, because D'Angelo, I think, was right at the heart of that so-called neo-soul movement alongside people like Lauryn Hill and Erica Badu and The Roots, and Michelle Andegio Cello that looked like it was reaching a, a certain level of critical mass around 1999, 2000, 2001. What he was doing was updating the sound of uh, 60s and 70s soul and funk and bringing it into the hip-hop era, and he accomplished it totally on the voodoo record. You can hear the sound of Sly Stone's There's a Riot going on in this record. The way the rhythm was foregrounded, the bass playing on voodoo alone deserves some kind of award. It's a guy by the name of Pino Palladino. And your, your head is just swimming around in the bass lines that are being played on this record. But the heart and soul of it is, is D'Angelo. When I talked to him about this record, he said, I wanted to get a little bit of that feeling that I got when I was in church. He was the son of a Pentecostal minister in the South. I wanted to get that feeling of people speaking in tongues and combining it with what he was hearing on those Sly Stone records from the early 70s, that sort of opium den quality of acid funk. This is very much a headphone record. I know it's a cliche, but I I don't think this record really works unless you slap those headphones on and swim around inside the vibe he was creating. You actually get the sense that you are in the room uh, when you're hearing this record. The subject matter of this song, Devil's Pie, it's all about the seduction of what he felt was going around in the music industry at the time. Are we going to take a slice of that devil's pie and compromise our values, what we're trying to do? And maybe that explains why D'Angelo has not made another record since then. He's been wrestling with these issues. There's been some substance abuse problems. He's been in and out of jail a few times. 
God only knows if he'll make another record. But the last one he made, it was a masterpiece. And here's an example of it. Devil's Pie from D'Angelo on Sound Opinions. Mainly greens, walk to this dish. Goes like this, here's the list. Materialistic, greed and lust. Jealousy, envious. Break don't cheese. Flashes, dash, cash and cream. Temperatures are high degree. Skin come to peace. Landlessness, all about apocalypse. Ain't no doubt. Everybody's holding out on the loop. All the clout, right or wrong, do or die. All the vengeance can pacify. Watch your back, so will I. In these days and times, the slides, fall apart. Why is why? Till we fry. Watch us all stand alive. Folks like some devil's pie. Drugs and thugs, when and why? Three or four at a time. Watch them all. Devil's Pie by D'Angelo from the voodoo album Mr. Cot couldn't do a better Desert Island jukebox pick this week. Thank you, Jim. Some uh, good medicine, and I think that sort of ties in with next week's show. We're going to be the rock doctors again. The stethoscopes are coming out, and we're going to help a couple of Sound Opinions listeners solve their musical problems. Greg, we have some thank yous to say. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by the ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, is Tori Southside Malatia. And we really have to say, our life would suck without him. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hey guys, this is Gary from Long Island City. Uh, this is a great show with Nico Case. My son and I listen to you every Sunday, and you may remember he responded to your negative feelings about the Rock and Tours, which you played. Anyway, I was real happy to hear you uh, signaling out St. Elmo's Fire. It's an album when I was on vinyl that I would buy all my friends because I felt everybody in the world should have um, another green world. So, great job, and Love listening to you guys. Bye. This is Eliza from South Carolina. I am calling in reference to your Morrissey review. I'm really disappointed in the direction that you guys choose to take with your reviews. Morrissey is total sound opinions material. Who listens to your show? People that download podcasts, people that listen to public radio. We care about Morrissey. We want to hear about Morrissey's career. You spend... Uh, Endless amount of time dissecting ACDC's discography. 
We don't care about ACDC. Talk about Morrissey. Three-minute review is just not doing it. And do you even know about his past album, Ringleader of the Tormentors, is happy? Are you kidding me? Life is a pigsty? Have you ever heard of this song? It's one of his great. Take it out. It's not a happy album. Next time, don't leave us hanging. Give us what we want. Thanks. Bye. It's the same Hey guys, my name is Chris. I'm calling from Washington, D.C. I just had to pick my jaw up off the floor and give you guys a call after I heard Jim DeRogatis give a favorable review to U2's No Line on the Horizon. Uh, that you, Jim, were actually more enthusiastic about this record than Greg blew my mind. I'm a longtime U2 fan who liked but didn't love the latter two records in the 21st century. I agree with what you said in your review about them being kind of too safe, uh, returns to form. This new record is much more substantive and, and mysterious and, and satisfying. I did not think it was possible for you, Jim, given your apparently immense personal animosity towards Bono, to give a new U2 project a fair hearing, so I want to acknowledge that you did. In your review, you didn't talk about the lyrics, and I think this is a huge step up for Bono in the lyric department over the last U2, uh, couple of U2 records. There's a lot of evocative, haunting imagery here that I'm still digesting. Anyway, I just wanted to call in and say sorry I doubted you, Jim. And uh, love the show, guys. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Hey, this is Barry Zimmerman uh, from Norman, Oklahoma. Love you guys, Jim. Steven acknowledged you two by reviewing their album. You know, they. They haven't been interesting in years. Uh, you know, Bono with his glasses on, like Jughead with his crown, standing next to George Bush. There's a total disappointment to what rock is all about. Uh, you know, let him go, man. Let him go. Thanks. On the edge of the known universe. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, one 888 859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.